Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Sue Watman today. Uh, she's a senior lecturer in health and physical education at in sport pedagogy at Griffith University. Uh, Sue and I met at the ARA conference in Toronto this past uh, April and uh, knew of each other on Twitter before that. So uh, today we're going down under to explore, that was really bad, wasn't it? All right, uh, to explore her research on indigenous knowledges as a form of disrupting norms. Uh, so here we go with a new episode of Playing with Research in Health and Physical Education. All right, so today's article is titled Indigenous Knowledges as a Way to Disrupt Norms in Physical Education, Teacher Education. Uh, it was published in 2017 in Asia Pacific Journal of Health, and, uh, Health Sport, and Physical Education, um, which is now Curriculum Studies in Health and PE, as I, as I think. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Sue. Thank you. And again, like um, all your guests, we're really delighted to be here. I mean, it's it's the way of the future, I think, <laughs> for people to, to listen to um, research. And, and But it, even more than that, you you bring it to life by by reading it and pulling out questions and, you know, really getting to the heart of it. So thank you for that opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I would like to note to all the listeners out there that we're very dedicated. Um, Sue is in uh, Brisbane or Gold Coast, uh, right outside of Brisbane. So it's like nine o'clock your time at night. Yep, just after nine. Yep. And uh, it's seven no, o'clock nice in the morning. Yeah. So <laughs> we're, we're very dedicated to making That's these right. time zones work. Um, so you um, co-authored this with a couple a uh, couple of different people. Can you kind of just share about that partnership? Yep, sure. So um, I'll, I'll just start with um, Juliana McLaughlin first, only because uh, Julie and I, we had worked on a, um, a large funded project for the Australian um, Learning and Teaching Council. And it was about supporting Indigenous pre-service teachers. So in, in Australia, Indigenous refers to Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islander peoples and from that we actually interviewed lots we, we worked with lots of pre-service teachers but it, within that group was a, a pool of health and physical education teachers so then I um, had gone to Uruburu University in 2016 to, to spend a couple of weeks working with Mikhail Quenistet and to say this I want to do something with this pool of experiences of Indigenous pre-service teachers in HPE and in a way that, that talks about um, disrupting norms. So, um, yeah, it, it took a while. There were so many ways you could go with the with the, the, the amount of uh, interview data and so on that we had. And it took a while for us to sit down and figure out what will this paper actually be about? Like what will we really hone in on? And so after a few meetings of, of writing lots of things on the board and circling things and, and, and thinking about, well, what, what kind of work does Mikhail do? And you've had him already on the podcast talking about salutogenesis and strength-based approaches. I thought, well, this, this is the thing. Our, our project was conceptualized from the idea that these students were future curriculum leaders. They're not little deficit systems. They're not at risk they're actually going to be future leaders in, in health and physical education. So the idea of that whole strengths-based mm -hmm. uh, standpoint was really that uniting, um, um, I guess, the glue that, <laughs> that right. made this a, a team of three with me, Mikhail and Julie. 
Awesome. So you use the term hegemonic norms in the paper, and uh, you mentioned that there's been a lot written, written about this topic in regards to physical education, teacher education. Could you just explain this term in a little bit more detail for listeners and how, how it plays out in the physical education setting? Yep, sure. And um, we, we, we prefer, <laughs> you always risk leaving people out, of course, when you, you whittle down your reference list, but um, the people doing work around, you know, who's an ideal PE teacher? Um, so Laura Azarito's paper around, um, you know, pretty active and ideally white. Uh, Anne Flintoff has had done a lot of work around black and minority ethnic students' um, experiences in PE. Katie Fitzpatrick's done a lot in, in New Zealand. Um, my, I've, I've written a lot of work, not in specific to HPE, but in, in Indigenous education more broadly, um, about the experience of being um, an Indigenous, not, not, I'm not an Indigenous person, but talking about how, how what I've learned about from working with and alongside Indigenous people, like I, what happens to them when they come up against these norms, what happens, what's their experience of not being the perfect vision of a, of a PE teacher, of not being um, who somebody expected and, and not uh, bringing to the table what people expected so having a different set of capital different set of social capital physical capital so the kind of norms then that just just by being um an aboriginal teacher in front of a mostly white class is already disrupting everybody's idea of what the teacher looks like who's the teacher so the um Disrupting then is, is not only about making sure more teachers look like that, <laughs> so our yeah. profession starts to look more like that. It's also about um, the the audience, the students, the parents all coming to know that, of course, of course, you, you might have Aboriginal PE teacher as much as you might have a non-Indigenous PE teacher, that they don't, um, you know, they're not a triathlete or 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 you know super fit human being you know all of these different and and there have been lots of norms about do you have to be someone who could basically be an ex-olympian in order to be a PE teacher right and Um, let me let me just kind of ask you just uh from a naive point of view uh without understanding a lot of aboriginal culture how how is that culture you know you've you've been in canada you've you know, been in, you know, different countries in the U.S., how, where would you compare that group to? And I don't know if I should be making comparisons, but, you know, in the U.S., you have a very low percentage of, you know, people of color entering proportionately into the teaching profession. So we're trying, and even in kinesiology, we're trying to recruit a more diverse faculty um, and we know that proportionately the number of PhDs awarded to people of color is very low. Um, so how does that, would you, you know, and not to even speak of Native Americans, which is very, very, very low proportionately, um, but where, where does that Aboriginal group fit into society in Australia? 
are the uh, well, pre-service uh, teachers like very low percentage-wise of people entering the profession, or how does that work? Um, it's it's lower than the like proportion of the population, but Australia's had a, a policy of encouraging people to come to university and consider teaching first and foremost for a really long time. So there's there's actually a history of um, actively recruiting people into teaching, and and I would say even um, in physical education, the recruitment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into teaching physical education is actually is good, is is proportionate. What what we as a faculty do poorly, as you've just mentioned, is converting those students to postgraduates and PhDs. So mm-hmm. our um, uptake of Indigenous postgraduates and members of this profession is really low and that I would say is similar to what you have with um, Native Americans First Nations people so I had a quick look on your um, website Um, the GMU Native American and Indigenous Alliance from George Mason University and noticed that you know there's a petition there to protect Piscataway land from deforestation got a campaign called re-indigenize you've got keywords remember question resist and there's a statement similar to what you'd find in Australian universities that we recognize this land we're originally on belongs to the Kimwa, Piscataue, Piscataue, Konoi and Duag peoples hope I've said that hopefully roughly <laughs> correctly and that like that's the same like so your situation at George Mason University is the same as as my university and any university that's that's in a colonized country like you've got a group of people who were dispossessed who used to run everything and now don't and yet there's this knowledge system there just not just not waiting to be discovered but waiting to be seen and waiting to be recognized as as always having been there and always belonging in the school system and i i would say speaking from you know being at this university I've never seen that on any email sign-off, as I would see at a lot of Australian universities. Um, in at Toronto, you know, they talk ARA talked a lot about you know, you know, respecting and acknowledging the lands that this conference is being held at, and I see that actually in a lot of email sign-offs in Australian communication that I have with colleagues down there, and. I have not seen it in in the U.S. and I, and I'm sure that it is done somewhere, but I don't have that on my sign off. I don't think about this as you know. Maybe it's because I'm a Finnish immigrant to this country, but you know, as a colonized land, which it totally is, but it's not at the forefront forefront of people's minds like it is in in Australia, and that's why I think the you know the indigenous population there or the Maori in New Zealand compared to Native Americans in the U.S. Very different. Even First Nation people in, you know, in Canada, the way that they are acknowledged is very different. I think in the U.S. we don't necessarily do that very well. Hmm. So Well, we've had, we've had, and, and like, it's funny because when I look at some of the things that happen in Canada, I think, oh, wow, they're so way ahead of Australia. And then when you speak to Canadians, they'll say, oh, well, there's actually lots of things we're not so way ahead in, <laughs> and you're way ahead as well. But the, there's been um, decades of policy um, imperative to 
recognise histories and cultures of Indigenous peoples. And Laura Alfrey mentioned that in your earlier podcast mm-hmm. with her, that valuing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples' histories and cultures, which implies then that you're actually going to engage with their knowledges, is actually a requirement, it's a priority across every discipline area. So every teacher in Australia, including every single PE teacher, or HPE teacher as we call in, in Australia, should be thinking, ah, oh, how, how do I value um, Aboriginal histories and cultures in my curriculum or in my teaching? And there's been lots and lots of work in it, but it's in pockets and people do it well, some people may not, some people go, oh, I don't want to stuff it up, but I guess the point of this paper and and our, and our larger project that it draws from is that, well, look, we're, we're expecting pre-service teachers who you consider to be, you know, less experienced, less less uh, expert at what they're doing to show you how to do it, which they did in this project. Why can't you <laughs> have a go? <laughs> learn from learn from their um, experiences as deliberately trying to embed Indigenous knowledges into PE while they're on prac, while they're being assessed by an external person who's a member of the teaching profession in a way that may or may not you know, break their, their their graduation. Do they pass? Do they not pass? And they did it. So yeah. it's really it, it, there's no there's nowhere to stand to say I don't want to do it. You just have to. Yeah. So going going back into this paper, you you talk a lot about these hegemonic norms and you kind of push back on those um, and you look to explore about perspectives and experiences and knowledge of indigenous pre-service teachers in order to really understand the process of becoming a HPE teacher, um, can you talk a little bit about um, indigenous pre-service teachers and their current experiences as health and PE teachers? Um, what's, their, what's their experience and is that specific to the Australian context? Yeah, well, firstly, as, as we just said, they're, they're unlikely to have an indigenous lecturer in PE, very unlikely. <laughs> we have a very, very, very small Indigenous PE faculty in Australia. So their first experience then is that I'm learning how to be a PE teacher from a white person. That's going to be almost a given. Secondly, they're going to possibly be jarred by that person's interpretation of what it means to be healthy, what it means to be uh, good at sport or what it means to be um, competent in movement what it means to be creative, all of these things. So the, the norms here then are like, well, whatever's in the frame of reference of, of a non-Indigenous person is going to be used to judge how good this person is. So, they, But they're used to that. They've just experienced that all through schooling. Then um, the students, like our project was born out of noticing that we were um, coming in at the very end of a student's practicum experience when they were on notice for risk of failure. Not 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 a huge number, but like it was consistently always a group of people. And of that group of people, there would always be Indigenous pre-service teachers at risk of failing PRAC. And we'd only get, and well, sometimes we'd find out after it already happened. I thought, well, that what, what a genuine waste of all of the learning and, and the potential there. So we thought, well, what if we front load this get students together before they go on PRAC, recruit supervising teachers who take that imperative to value knowledges and histories and cultures seriously 
and they want to learn more about how to do it themselves. So just get them on board as supervising teachers at particular schools, get the students to go to those schools and we would resource them up. We'd have lots of pre-meetings, lots of, uh, we'd have a shared Google Drive with all the resources in, in um, Indigenous knowledges in health and phys ed that we could find and also in science and all kinds of disciplines that they could draw down on. Share those with the students, share those with the supervising teachers. Then we'd go and see them on PRAC, we'd pull them in in the middle of PRAC, we'd speak to them again at the end. And we'd try and, I guess really, um, so Julie and I were doing this part, we we're running interference in the middle of the PRAC to say, how's she going with that embedding? Like, because sometimes the teachers wouldn't allow it, you know, because they were, they're so used to not seeing the spaces in the curriculum to embed Indigenous knowledges, they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't let the students bring in what they know. So that gets back to that idea of seeing them as people with resources, people who have, uh, who bring something to the learning that would not, would not be brought by anybody else. They brought something really unique to the learning, but how does our very um, you know, rigid <laughs> physical education curriculum um, allow allow this knowledge to work its way in so um, I think if we talk a little bit about the three students a bit later on I can tell you an yeah. example from each of those mm -hmm. students that um, that of how, how that happened um, yeah. but so before, in your um, yeah go ahead oh I was just going to say like you know you had you had sent me a prompt about talking about the idea of growth and as education, education is growth, mm -hmm. and this allows me to talk a little bit more about how how this part got negotiated with Mikhail Quenistet as the as another author. So as, you, as you've already had him on your podcast, and you know that he works with Dewey's Ideas. We we drew on two of those books, Democracy and Education, and Experience in Education, and looking at the idea then that so students often look at being a pre-service student so looked at being as that immature is bad that you don't know very much and we have to fill you up but the the doing concept is that immaturity is good that you are you are ready it's desirable you're not finished you're c capable of learning more in any direction you, you're on a journey that can go in any direction and that you've got this capacity for for, for lifelong cumulative um, ongoing learning and growth but the, so um, I found a nice quote that says, oh, for Dewey, there's no destination, <laughs> no absolutes to gravitate towards, just continued growth. But this growth then, the, the sort of things that happen, so when you put someone in a situation and they and they bring something you weren't expecting, if you're, a, if you're a teacher, you might think that that's a disaster. You had no idea that, for example, you talk about something that upsets everybody or you talk about something that's, um, you know, it's brings people into conflict with their beliefs and you think that, oh, I shouldn't have done that, that's bad. You go, no, that's good. Well, it may not be good immediately, but what it's done is enabled a kind of growth that wasn't possible before. And the second thing that we did was drew a little bit on um, Sharon Todd's work about liminality or pedagogical relations. And that's the same thing. Like you're in a moment and you think it's going to pan out in one way and it doesn't. It goes off in an unexpected way. And that can be really amazing as well, but it also suspends who's who's the teacher and who's the student. And in this case, and this is why it was like bringing these pre-service teachers who might otherwise be judged as 
um, at risk or not knowing very much. So I've got to show them what to do, which is often what happens in that relationship, supervising relationship. Really, if, if you're bringing someone who's got all of these years of experiences and perspectives and knowledges of, of being an Indigenous person, are they really the student anymore or have they become the teacher? So you, you, you have these moments where the person who, who is expert and novice becomes really, really unclear and it's meant to be and that's, and that's a good thing. And that, that was that kind of theoretical aspect of the paper that I hope came through to say that these, this is what's going on in these moments that the students were, the pre-service teachers were navigating in PRAC with their supervising teachers who I have to say are actually very open to the idea they wouldn't have joined the project if they weren't interested in in learning more about or well, how can I do embedding in my practice um, so right. it, and then that those sorts of things those theoretical tools I hope help explain the sorts of incidents and the examples we've shared with those three students yeah and so there's a there's a bust of John Dewey's head and Teachers College where I where I got my doctorate degree. So you're supposed to rub John Dewey's head before your finals for good luck. Um, so in his house, like where he lived is right down the street and there's like a little plaque there. Anyway, so if anybody's in New York, you should go and check that out. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about. Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what you set out to do with this specific research project. What was the purpose? So the purpose was, as I said, to recast the students as people with strengths and resources, to have their supervising teachers see them as fabulous instead of not fabulous, and then um, uh, enable them to model for like the whole teaching profession. This is, this is a way that you could uh, embed Indigenous knowledges. Now, you see, we also draw on a lot from a fellow called Professor Martin Nakata, who's a Torres Strait Islander educator. And he has uh, he was asked by the Australian Curriculum Authority to write about, well, how would you embed Indigenous knowledges? Because he's, he's written a lot on the subject. And he said, it's about finding natural opportunities to plug in your knowledge. So you have to have that knowledge in order to be able to plug it in. And you also, but something else has to happen in order for you to see the opportunity to plug it in, to realize oh, this would be a really good opportunity to talk about you know, X, Y, Z. So with, for example, um, Maria, Maria was a, a final year primary PE specialist. So in Queensland, we have HPE specialists. Other states don't necessarily have the specialists, but we do. So she was uh, taking her last HPE prac, but again, a, a typical structure or pathway to being a teacher in primary is to be both a classroom teacher and a PE specialist. So she was both. She did classroom pracs and she did PE pracs. So on this particular one, she turned up, it was April, you know, part of the timing of prac means, well, these kids will be doing cross country. These ones will be on camp. Oh, you can do whatever you like with year three and four. They should be doing a striking unit. She went, okay, I'm going to use Yalunga. Now, Yalunga is a Sport Australia resource on Indigenous games, and you should Google it. I'll, get, I'll send you the link, and it's been, um, it's how, been up how do on you spell the, that? Uh, it is a Y U L U 
L-U-N-G-A and it's called Yulunga Traditional Indigenous Games. Uh, it was um, comes out of the work research work that Ken Edwards did and this particular version was Ken Edwards and Troy Meston and Troy spent a lot of years uh, going around Australia teaching people how to teach Indigenous games. So when you get into that resource there are hundreds of games in it first of all it disrupts the idea that you know that, that nothing exists from indigenous australia like that we have this myth of terra nullius that everything that first of all this was some big great empty land and second of all there was nothing here and so the idea this resource in itself shows all the sorts of things that your typical kids did and used to play and these are the sorts of things that they played so she went and found some striking games out of that resource and said well they're supposed to be learning fundamental movement skill, learning how to, you know, use an implement to strike a ball. We're going to do something out of your longer Indigenous games. Now, that in itself could have just served the purpose of um, coming up with a, an assessment rubric to talk about hand-eye coordination, timing, using their weight to shift weight transfer, all the sorts of things you normally would if you're playing baseball or softball. So she did do that, but the extra thing she did was, well, why why else would we do Indigenous games? Like, we could may as well just play softball if we're only going to worry about hand-eye coordination. So she introduced a reflective aspect to it. The students had to research where the game came from, you know, who the language groups were. So I was, that's, you know, I looked up Piscataway. I wanted to know who the language group was from where you're from. That's what the students needed to do. Who are the people who, whose, whose game this is? Where did they live? What was their countryside like? Because again, a lot of games evolved out of the environment. What was available? You know, are we talking about rainforest here, water, islands? We're we talking about um, what kind of materials normally form the games. So what it does is suddenly then enrich the idea where games come from. That games aren't just some kind of thing that's invented in an idle mind. Games are, are firmly embedded in the country and the land and the people and the reason for playing them, the reason, the objective of it. And so all of those things suddenly come into the collective consciousness of the students in a way that just, oh, well, let's just teach baseball again, well, you know, would never have happened. So in that sense, in her case, embedding Indigenous knowledges didn't take the PE teacher away from their core business of teaching students how you might you know, strike something, but it also did way more than that. In the same amount of time, in the same, you know, half an hour lesson, and in a way that, you know, modelled a, a perfect natural opportunity to embed Indigenous knowledges in a, in a movement and physical activity class. Right. And so that's a, that's a great example from Maria. And you followed two other pre-service teachers, Rosie yeah. and Simone. Um, yep. Can you kind of walk me through their stories as well? Yeah. So Rosie, and I wanted to put Rosie's story in this. She wasn't a HPE specialist, but again, in, a, in primary school or elementary school in Australia, the, because we do have specialist teachers, they tend to do all the movement, physical activity, and the health education tends to get left to the classroom teacher. So Rosie was a classroom teacher, but she was teaching a health unit, a health education unit, and she chose what um, is very, very common in the early years, and that's to talk about my family. And so it's a unit about personal identity, but then students learning to understand how their personal identity is more broadly connected to their family and their community and Australia and where, where they're from in the world. So Rosie was from Torres Strait. Now, as I said earlier, Torres Strait's right up the very top of Queensland. It's between... Um, 
uh, Queensland and Papua New Guinea. She's multilingual. She speaks four languages. But in her previous pracs, you know, her, her teachers were saying, oh, she's not a very good English speaker. So she's been cast as this deficient speaker of English with a heavy accent rather than someone who speaks four languages. So that idea that her multilingualness wasn't in the consciousness of pre people who'd previously assessed her. Um, she, again, in this unit, uh, if you ask a bunch of mostly non-Indigenous kids to, oh, you know, draw a picture of your family and they draw, you know, mum, dad, or just mum or just dad or whoever else is in their immediate family, and that's usually it. So you ask an Indigenous student to draw their family, then they need a really big piece of paper. And that's not just because they may or may not have lots of brothers and sisters. It's because who they see is in their family is, oh, my aunties, all my uncles, all my great aunties, all my great uncles and grandparents and cousins and second cousins. So it's a concept of who's my family. So she disrupted that with, with sharing her story. And then... Uh, another thing they will do is um, talk about, well, what are things that, you know, your family normally do? So sometimes kids who are in grade two might say, oh, um, oh yeah, oh, we've been to a wedding or, you know, I've got an older brother and sister and they, ha they had an 18th. Or, you know, so they talk about milestones and talk about uh, what you might describe as cultural events. So Rosie was able to say, well, here's a wedding from, from my island community. Here we all are getting there in boats, which, you know, again, is blows the minds of kids in, in the city in, in Brisbane that everybody gets everywhere and you go to school in right. a boat um, here's us and you know this is something that I always talk about this with my pre-service teachers she showed uh, the, the ceremony of hunting a turtle and then you cut it up and you cook it because when you when you eat a turtle that's a really big deal that's for important occasions and it's not something that happens every day it's only something that happens for big important occasions but it conflicts with another worldview about you can't kill turtles you know so you, you, you suddenly you've got this um new or a new perspective on well, what's a turtle a turtle's a giant fish you know you eat it when it's a, but oh no it's a protected species so it brings in all these different discourses so she, her the thing that the moment then and the liminality was right up until she started doing so she had about a week or two before starting this unit again the supervising teacher's going oh, English isn't good enough I'm worried and the teacher was hovering and wasn't allowing her to teach and then once she said oh okay I'm going to step back I'm going to let her do it Rosie like she went like that like her confidence went through the roof so she suddenly became the kind of teacher the, pre the supervising teacher was looking for her she was bursting with with confidence bursting with sharing and being the knowledgeable one being the one that was filling filling up the expectations of what this curriculum could deliver that she hadn't experienced on her previous practice because they didn't care one iota about her being a Torres Strait Islander person so this knowledge that she plugged in enabled her to have a amazing prac report an invitation to come back for the right. next one and, you know that sort of yeah. thing that wouldn't have and happened. the only thing that she yeah and the only thing that she needed was somebody there to let her be herself and bring in that culture that she has to and i think the you know you you explaining how rosie knows you know 
fluently how to speak four languages. I'm always amazed at how typically in English-dominated countries, you know, we judge people to be not intelligent if they don't speak uh, English in this, you know, fluent fashion. Whereas they might actually know five different languages, and they're having a conversation in their fifth language with you. And when we meet people at conferences and they're having technical conversation about research in their fourth language and the audacity of somebody then to judge and go, wow, I don't think that person was smart because they don't know how to do this or that. It's like, oh, they, they are, they're intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. I know, and, and, and they're always code-switching and always yeah, interpreting in their head at the same time. It's amazing. Yeah, so what about Simone? So she was a secondary teacher. So she was a bit more, if you got the, um, imagining who, who a health and physical education teacher is, Simone was it. She was a secondary um, teacher. She uh, was, again, in her second last prac before uh, doing an into what we call an internship, the very last thing they do before graduating. And we did actually, they were all in third or fourth pracs because we didn't want students at the very beginning of their four-year degree to take on what we thought was a, what, quite a complex task. So they're all in third or fourth prac. So um, revisiting, so developing your personal and community identity is something that is, is done incrementally over the Australian curriculum from the early years right through into secondary. So she revisited the family tree unit in um, year eight in her placement. So what she decided to do was use as an exemplar, an assessment exemplar, and also the lesson content uh, around family tree, a story of one of her great uncles who was a famous Aboriginal boxer. And there, if you, if you like your sports history in Australia, you'll see there's quite a lot written about um, boxing troops that used to go around. And they were, this is like 30s and 40s. And her, her great uncle was one of these people. So he was very wealthy. He earned lots of money. He's very successful. He had property. He had, um, he had the kind of life that wealthy sports stars have in, in that era. But when he stopped boxing, well, the colonial laws of Australia kicked in. So again, his his movements were regulated. He's a, he couldn't have full control of his affairs or his finances. His um, his experience of Australian society and the laws that were designed to target and regulate the movement of Aboriginal people impacted upon his life, upon his mental health, upon his well-being, and he and he died a premature death, and he died without the income of a famous sports star. So you might sit back and go, oh, are we doing, is this a history in it? Well, no. I mean, we teach about uh, mental health. We teach about um, the, the health and welfare of all Australians. And we look at statistics. We look at demographics. We look at populations. So what if you're overlaid? What it actually means to be a, an Aboriginal person in Australia? And then look at those incidences of of mental health instead of looking at it going oh that, that they've got lots of problems haven't they uh-huh it's called, it's called colonization so th this ability for her to take a unit that's really common in health and physical education 
talking about your family tree, doing a bit of research into your own your own um, life, allowed her to bring in a bit of what you might call political studies or history studies. And and as a as a HPE teacher, you might think, well, I don't have to know all that stuff, do I? Well, we're going, well, don't you? If you're going to teach about this topic, don't you really need to know why these different groups of people, and particularly Indigenous Australians, have all of this is explain this explains everything you would ever teach in a health and physical education class about health and welfare of Indigenous Australians. His story right there, her great uncle. So it was yeah. really powerful. Yeah, and that was exactly the word I was going to use is is powerful. Um, so I, I will ask this uh, kind of follow-up question or ending question that my um, qualitative um, research methods teacher would always yell from the back of the room when people are presenting, so what? Uh, wh- what does this mean for HPE in general and how do you see it informing or improving physical education, teacher education in the future? Well, it, it's, I, I think, it, well, a couple of ways. It goes back to what we talked about earlier that our faculty is overwhelmingly white and that's that means that there's not people of color or indigenous people in our faculty so part of when you crack open a space in something you need people to keep it open <laughs> so our faculties need to recruit they have to if you want this kind of um, disruption and uh, and new learning for everybody to be enabled, then you need more people who who agree that it's important. Because plenty of people in Australia go, oh yeah, yeah, it's important, it's important. But it, then we'll go and forget about it and move on because it's actually not, it's not that important to them. And it's certainly not life and death like it is for, for Indigenous Australians. So renovating our faculty and that and that shouldn't make people feel alarmed <laughs> you know you really don't think oh, oh but I deserve to be here uh, sure keep bringing more people in like your next your next postgraduate student like where are they coming from like how how are you engaging with this community as I said there's quite a decent uh, indigenous PE teacher community in Australia that it's just not the postgraduate community so you got to think about what do we as a faculty do to do that the other thing too is like when we were talking about in America um, the recognition of, of First Nations land rights isn't very high well yeah, I, to me again that's that's everybody's business that's not it's not just the business of history lecturers or politics lecturers it's it's everybody's business to talk about this it's unresolved unresolved business to not acknowledge that dispossession of land and then and then destruction of languages and and community life isn't still festering away and isn't actually still influencing everybody who's mm-hmm. there so that that's something that that people need to take that away from that too so and and finally um i, I see it as a good thing what i'm always bemused by those polls that come around on twitter or or threads where people are going, what is it we should really be teaching in HP? And going, oh, they don't do that. <laughs> like, why, why would you do that? Don't try and distill it down to some kind of core, because at the end of the day, I can tell you, it's going to be a bun- It's going to be decided by the people who are in this faculty right now. And we've already said that that faculty is overwhelmingly white, 
overwhelmingly uh, you know, the English language dominates the descriptions and the forms and the, the physical cultures take. Is that really what you want to distill health and physical education down to? I don't think so. I think that you, you take it as an opportunity to go, oh, thank God we can get rid of, I better not say anyone's favorite sport, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that opportunity yeah. to say, let's, let's, let's do things differently and, and mean it. Awesome. Um, so do you feel that there's implications beyond Australia for this work and like in yep. different Pacific regions, New Zealand and Hawaii, and maybe you can give some concluding thoughts on the, on the yep. paper? Well, look, lots, all of those places you've just mentioned have got academies beavering away at this particular idea and that embedding or decolonizing or re-indigenizing is something um, that, that, that everybody's doing. So for me, and is it does it have um, import or, or value outside of Australia and Australia Pacific? Well, I think well, yeah, because all all about one another thing about the studies in about what are these hegemonic norms in PE will tell you is they there, there are lots of things, lots of practices that have travelled that are very common around the world. And, and these are the practices that aren't good. <laughs> these are the ones that we would probably like to to renovate and change. And I guess as a concluding note, I'll share a little um, a little insight I gained. So when I was first, um, we were trying to thrash out this paper, it was three years ago now, in Uruburu, Mikhail organized for me to go and sit in and watch some of the the, you know the classes that were happening I didn't take any I was just an observer so I watched um, a dance class I watched an outdoor learning class a few other things and what struck me was even though they were speaking in Swedish which I do not speak <laughs> it I, I knew what was going on I could recognize dominant modes of teaching the sorts of things that that I knew what exactly what they were doing well, not exactly, that sounds presumptuous, but I knew, I, I knew enough. I had enough from my insights of how you do Australia to see the sorts of things that were the same in Sweden. So then if you, you go to any country and look at it and think, I recognise the dominant practices here, then if you're talking about a project that disrupts dominant practices, well, that can happen in any country, in any anywhere at all, where higher in higher learning, you are educating someone about what it means to be a health and physical education teacher. Right. So yes, everywhere. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Sue. Uh, this has really been uh, enlightening for me. I, I love the kind of narrative format of these uh these three teachers as well um so where can people find you on twitter online if people are more interested in this work we'll cite to the paper on the notes um well this if uh, i'm on twitter so i think actually i can't remember if it's sue dot Watman or sue underscore Watman. not sure but you should find it sue Watman, and it says um um gold coast or griffith or something like that as the as the byline um, the project, the Supporting Future Curriculum Leaders with Embedding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Knowledges, that's on a permanent site with the um, Office for Learning and Teaching, which is run by the Australian Government. So you could kind of, if you searched out Supporting Future Curriculum Leaders, you might find it. Um, it's also housed on a permanent 
resource site through QUT, which is another university in Brisbane, which is where Julie works. It's um, and you can look for me just by searching Sue Watman Griffith University. You'll find me that way as well. And I'm on ResearchGate and all of those things. And we try to. I've actually got a little project site on ResearchGate that's got some papers around um, this topic. Yeah, and I guess too, I, I, I'll um, take a leaf out of Julia Sargent's book. I didn't do this at the beginning, but I want to thank my co-authors, <laughs> Julie McLaughlin and Mikhail, Mikhail Kwanisset, because they, like, Julie's actually not a physical education teacher educator. She's more generally an Indigenous education, but she worked on the big project with me. And um, and for Mikhail for being a good sport, certainly, to, uh, there's a good Aussie, Aussie phrase for you, to, to take on something that wasn't, it certainly wasn't his content knowledge, but the idea, the idea that you um, are disrupting what's typical in, in HPE, that was certainly, definitely what he brought to this paper. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you very much, Sue. Uh, appreciate your research. Appreciate your time on the podcast. And uh, we'll link to all that information on the, on the notes. Thanks. Thank you and keep it up. Great work. We will certainly try. Thank you.